0: why am i here what am i supposed to do for me it was easy to answer that question i'm supposed to be here talk to speak up for other people as a lawyer or as something else i'm supposed to be an advocate i know this because i like doing it even when i was in school i always want to speak I always want to speak to explain what was going on and to put across a point of view So, to me, being a lawyer was the ideal job. I had no idea what a lawyer really did. Who among us really know? It was that romantic idea of, yes, I'm going to fight for justice. I'm going to stand up for the weak. I'm going to be the voice of the oppressed. I will be a lawyer. Honestly, there was nothing else I could see myself doing.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 101 of the So Does My Why podcast. I'm Lingya. Back as your resident host and producer, and this week, quite a given the political turmoil that Malaysia is going through, we are meeting the king of Singapore, Adrian Tan, author of two best-selling books, The Teenage Textbook and The Teenage Workbook, which has turned into a play, movie, and TV series, the president of Singapore's Law Society, a partner at TSMP, and as a LinkedIn writing extraordinaire. His posts go viral and sometimes even hit the mainstream media headlines. But who is Adrian Tan, really? How did Adrian end up where he is? What was it like growing up in a CBD community that didn't understand the concept of privacy? How did he go from writing fiction to becoming the top of his legal field? And just why is he the king of Singapore? All that and more in this episode, which is divided into three parts. The second part will be released this coming Sunday and the third will be released thereafter which will feature a special questions from the audience episode because some of you had questions for Adrian and he's given his answer. So are you ready to hear part one of Adrian's story? Let's go.
0: Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life.
1: And here's your host, Ling Ya.
0: The story of Singapore is always a story about immigration. There are people who are many generations here, but the vast majority of people in Singapore and Malaysia are immigrants. And each person has an immigrant story. So my immigrant story is about a cook. My grandfather was from Hainan Island. And that's The Hawaii of China. Why is it the Hawaii of China? It's an island. It's very sunny. There are great beaches. And in fact, it's a great place to go on a holiday. But for his own reasons, he didn't want to stay there. So he took a boat and came over to Singapore. And when you look at the waves of immigration for the Chinese that came to Singapore, I think the Hokkien, the Cantonese, the teochews they came over first, they established businesses. And when the Hainanese came over, Right at the end, we had only two occupations. One was FNB, and the other was, and I read this somewhere, it's very surprising. The other was male prostitution. So male prostitution goes like this. When the British set up Singapore, they didn't want too many women migrants. So they focused on male migrants. That's because they thought that men would be able to do construction work and build a new city and so on. Because there was a shortage of women, I think some of the men or some of the boys turned to male prostitution. I'm not sure how voluntary it was. I'm sure a lot of it was coerced or worse. But this thesis I read in university said that a lot of Hainanese, because they came right at the end, the young boys ended up being male prostitutes. And I don't know how true it is, but it was said to be like this because Hainanese boys were very attractive. (laughs) But the point is that when you ask most Hainanese what did they do when they came here, most Hananese ancestors will say they were in the F&B industry because they don't want to say anything else. So my grandfather was like that. I don't know a lot about him. He was a cook in some Englishman's house. When my father was 10, his father, my grandfather, met with a traffic accident and he died. My father was really upset because he said that the boss... The Englishmen didn't even provide money for the funeral. That death had a lot of impact on my father because at that time, Singapore was still occupied by the British. There was only one route of advancement. Then as now, it's education. My father was really bright, but because of the death of his father, my dad couldn't go on with further studies. He ended up being a teacher. And that's a source of, I would say, discontent for him. Because he was very, very bright, and he could have been destined for great things if his father hadn't died. So this is the sort of life-changing event that happens not only to one generation, but generations that go down. You see, if there are successful migrant families, it's sometimes not because the migrants himself was very astute or very capable. It's simply because he didn't die. He just managed to survive and raise a family and provide for them. And with that, a new generation is born. I think today when we look at migration, whether in Singapore or elsewhere, we also have to think, what sort of migrants are we getting? What are their stories? I often wonder and compare their stories to mine. Are we going to get more generations of Singaporeans who can contribute? And what type of migrants will we have? I'm not sure if I can say the same in Malaysia. I don't know enough about Malaysia, but I suppose there's some level of immigration as well.
1: When you were talking about that, it makes me think of some of the posts that you've written. It sounds like as though you were very much more open-minded than some people about the idea of immigration. For instance, there's one topic you wrote about, oh, foreign workers, should they have access to free legal advice? Don't they need to have that kind of proper representation? Do you feel you being aware of your origin story allow you to be more empathetic? Well,
0: partly, but let's face it, they are human beings because they are not from the same country and so on. We should give them different rights. I feel that Singapore itself is built on migration. It's a city that was created out of nothing. The British came and they founded it. Before that, it was a trading port, very successful. But the British were the ones that introduced large-scale migration and they completely changed the culture. When we have a lot of migrants who come here and they establish a new city, within a few generations, we have National Anthem, we are a republic, we have our own way of talking, we have our own food, our own jokes. Then suddenly Singaporeans start feeling that they aren't migrants anymore, which is fair. They're not. I'm not. I'm not a migrant at all. But then they start thinking, I want Singapore to be frozen like this forever. I don't want change. I don't want people to come in from outside and start changing the Singapore that I love. Maybe the people that come in are from Europe or from America, from India, from China. It doesn't matter. They're different from me. Now that I'm like this, I want to put Singapore in a jar and not change it. I feel that I can understand why people feel that way. Singapore is a nice place, but I think it's not realistic. And it may actually be better for us if we accept that migration is necessary, especially when our country is not growing. Now, one interesting thing is that the number one source of migrants that Singapore seems to want is Malaysia. and Malaysia
1: wants you back too. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I think Malaysia wants Singapore back in a way, but also wants to capture, attract, maybe that's a better word, the best that Malaysia can offer. I'm not even sure whether there's a source of tension, but there is some thinking that when you look at Malaysia, they're very, very much like Singapore. Malaysians, they look like us, they talk like us, they eat more or less the same thing and they have the same values, the same outlook. And so it's very easy for Malaysians to assimilate. When Singaporeans think, okay, Singapore is not growing, we need to grow it, but where are we going to get people from Are we going to get people from America? No, we don't like that. Australia, New Zealand, no. Europe, no. China, India, no. They're still very different from us. Hmm. Oh, Malaysia. That's just like Singapore. So, During COVID, when we were having a lockdown and immediately after, there was a spike in work and business. Everything just spiked up once the lockdown ended and people started looking for new employees and immediately people started thinking, oh, maybe we should look to Malaysia. Maybe we should find some way to attract Malaysian lawyers, Malaysian doctors, Malaysian anything to come over here. And then we'll start that story all over again. I'm not sure how Malaysia feels about that though.
1: I mean, Malaysians a lot would jump at the chance to go to Singapore and and three times what you're earning here as well. Well,
0: it costs three times more. And I have to say that culturally, there are many similarities, but also a lot of differences. So I think that Malaysians can be very outspoken when it comes to politics and other areas. We kind of want it to be a bit more exciting than what it is already, because it's so predictable what's going to happen. The same People's Action Party will go back into power because they're very popular. They'll always have a mandate. They'll form the government. Maybe the opposition will win a few more seats. Maybe not. And that's the drama for the day. Then the next day, everybody goes back to work. And when we look across to Malaysia, we think, oh, look, it's very different. There is all kinds of activity. So I think that's the comparison that sometimes Singapore has with Malaysia.
1: I suppose it's always the case of Grasse's is greener on the other side. I wanted to go back to the theme of acceptance and what your father went through. I imagine that even though you might not have been fully consciously aware of his discontent he must have filtered down through the way that he lived his life your family life as well and i read that you actually got into this really elite primary school anglo-chinese primary school what was the story behind that because that was something that really transformed your life right
0: so my father was a primary school teacher and so was my mother in fact that's where they met and i was the first child I have a brother. My parents both believed in one thing, the power of education to transform lives. When you think about Asian immigrants or Chinese Singaporeans or any kind of Singaporeans, honestly, they are big believers in education. Now, if you get into a time machine and go back to the 1960s, that was when I was born, and you see the Singapore that existed then, it was a very new country There were some small industries that were just starting out. By and large, people had no idea what Singapore would be like. For people like my parents, they had no money. They weren't going to start a business or hand anything down to me to say, oh, here is a big piece of land, here is a house, here is a factory. The only thing they could pass down to me was education. Education is something they could give me and I could take wherever I went. And in the mindset of the Singaporeans in the 60s and 70s and 80s, the one thing they were always talking about was migration. So they were migrants. They talk about migration. What do you mean they talk about migration? Well, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, you'll get Singaporeans sitting around saying, oh, my dream is to migrate to Australia. My dream is to migrate to Canada. My dream is to migrate to the United States. Wouldn't it be nice to live forever in London? And then you think, what is strange? Why are you thinking like this? Oh, because we don't think that Singapore is going to be around that long. I mean, if you knew how Singapore was formed in the 60s and 70s, we had all kinds of issues. We were still a very new nation. And so a lot of people had this backup plan, which is that if I have the chance, if anything happens to Singapore, we're leaving, we're packing our bags and we're going. Now, you must remember in the 70s, there was a Vietnam War where there was a danger Communism. That's right. Communism would happen and there would be a domino effect. The communists would come down Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore. Even in the jungles of Malaysia, there was the Malayan Communist Party. There was lots of stuff happening. So it's understandable that Singaporeans of that era always had their backup plans. And the backup plan works if you have either got money or education. So since we didn't have money, my parents thought, okay, best bet is to do education. But their idea was really different because they thought, let's send our child to a school full of elite people, of the very rich and privileged people. That's because we want him to go to a good school, and it was a good school, the Anglo-Chinese school. I think there's one in Penang as well, because everything that Singapore has, Malaysia must have. No, seriously though, there is an Anglo-Chinese school in Malaysia. The one in Singapore is known to be a very good school, but also known to be a place where the children are from very privileged families. My mother was determined to get me into that. It was not easy. In fact, you can't get in if you don't have a relative there, if you're not a member of the Methodist Church, or if you haven't donated, stuff like that. They reserve a few places right at the end for people who have no connection with the school. And those places are balloted. So my mom and my dad stayed all night and then they balloted and I got in. And to me, that was better than winning any lottery, any amount of money. At that time, I was just a very ignorant child. My mom came back and she was so happy. I remember it was very late. I was wondering where my parents were and she came up the stairs of the flat and then she just hugged me and said, oh, Adrian, we got in. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about then we went to buy a school uniform and she got a little bag for me. In those days, the school bag looked like one of those luggage bags that you go on a plane trip with. You know, you get a Samsonite bag with a little handle on top, no wheels. So just miniaturize that. That was a school bag. I'm not sure like,
1: why. It sounds like a Japanese school bag.
0: Yeah, I'm not familiar. I kind of think you're right. It's a hard case and it's got two little blocks on the front and a little handle.
1: Almost like a soldier's bag. That's how they yes, adapted it. Yes,
0: that's right. The thing, there was all the rage. Everybody had that kind of bag. Nobody had a knapsack. Nobody had any other kind of bag. That was the standard bag. I think mine was $15 or something. It was pretty expensive. That Japan is
1: selling Oops. it for $1,000 now.
0: Okay, well, there you go. I should have kept mine. I'll be rich now. I should have spoken to you earlier. So my parents put me there. The first day I went in my new uniform and my bag to my shop, everybody there spoke English. and. To me, growing up where I grew up in Commonwealth Close, which is a public housing estate, the kids all spoke to each other in Hainanese or Chinese or a mix of Hokkien. It wasn't English for sure. It wasn't even good English. That's definite. But in ACS, everyone spoke good English. They spoke grammatical English so naturally and so fluently. So I went back and told my mom, I said, look, everyone there speaks English. And she said, yep, that's fine. You have to be the best at English because I'm an English teacher. So if you're not the best, it would be a huge disgrace to me. And it would make me very embarrassed and everyone say bad things about me. And you wouldn't want that, right? If you burden a seven-year-old child with all that kind of guilt.
1: Maternal (laughs) gaslighting. That's right.
0: Maternal gaslighting. I had no choice. My mom also phrased it this way. She said, Look, you are the son of two primary school teachers. We actually teach English, maths and science every day. And we've been doing it for years. So we're really good at that. We're going to teach you and you'll be really good at it. If you look at all the kids in class, their parents are not primary school teachers. This person's parent may be some entrepreneur. That person's parent may be some doctor, some lawyer, some government minister. You should pity them. Because they don't have good parents who can teach them. I kind of got suckered into that mindset. I wasn't in a condition to resist anyway. My mother was a very strict teacher. And when I say very strict, you know what Asian parents can be like. She had a ruler. She had a feather duster.
1: Anything she can get her hands
0: on. That's right. That's right. There was a lot of running around the flat. Let me tell you that. I think she made me think that I had to excel and had to be better. If I didn't, I'll be letting her down. There were all kinds of pressures. Today, when I talk to parents, I'm not a parent. They say, look, we don't punish our kids. We don't do anything to make our child feel bad. We are very gentle. I can understand it. I'm not able to tell people how to be parents because I'm not. But I wonder whether the old way was more effective. It probably left me with a lot of emotional scars. But, you know, for Asians, what's a few emotional scars, right? What my brother and I thought when we were adolescents and teenagers is the same as practically every teenager in the world, which is that we know everything. We're really smart and our parents are not cool. They don't get stuff. We have a lot of issues. When I was a teenager, I had a lot of issues and stuff that I wanted to do. So I think my mother wasn't on board with a lot of it. So naturally, I thought that she needed to get with the program or she was not cool enough, not smart enough. The thing I learned as I got older is my mother became smarter. I am now in my 50s. When my mother was raising me, she was in her 30s and she was just a young woman. She had a job and she also had to raise kids. With my dad, they were both just trying to get by in this world. They didn't have much help. They weren't from wealthy backgrounds. So they were just trying to make sense of a very rapidly changing world. When my mom grew up, she lived in a a kampong that had a well, no running water, no electricity. Same with my dad. They would rear chickens and pigs and the sort of thing that you'd have in a kampong. Then she moved from that one generation to being in a flat with a telephone, with a television.
1: Weren't you the first on your floor to get television when you were um, growing up? We
0: weren't the first, but uh, we were among the first. The thing about having a TV is that there would be people from other flats, from other homes that would come and watch TV with you through the window. I used to do that before we had a TV. So if you live in a block of flats, you know pretty soon who has a TV and who has a telephone. If you know that somebody has a telephone, most people who needed to make a phone call would go to that person and say, can I use your phone? And then they'll bring a small gift, a cake or something. And then when it's TV, TV is different. TV was a communal event. So imagine if you are living in a tiny three room flat. We call it a three room flat because it's got two bedrooms and one living room. That's a three room flat. About 800 square feet, one bathroom. The bedrooms are small, so everybody lived in the hall. The hall was sort of merged into the kitchen. And one end of the hall had windows that opened into the common corridor. Beyond the common corridor was the entire life of the neighborhood. Everybody would be sitting outside talking and putting their noses into other people's businesses. It was a kampong that was high rise. So if you had a TV, people would watch your TV with you. And if you're watching, you wouldn't position your TV in a way where the back was facing the window and people would think there's something wrong with you. Don't you want us to watch TV with you? So all the neighbors would crowd around the corridor and poke their heads through the window and laugh along or exclaim or talk. Because Asian people, when they watch something, they have to talk and comment. And so this is what's happening. Let's say you're having dinner in your home and you're watching TV. And behind you, there's all your neighbors saying, oh, why did he do this? Oh, this is very sad. Oh, I don't like this part of the show. And you just like, hello, I'm having food with my family. No, there's no idea of privacy in an HDB flat. So from a kampong, they moved to an HDB flat. From there, they have all these social mores, new ways of being a community that were developing. And so my mom was trying to cope with that. My dad's trying to cope with that. They were just married and they have their married people issues. And then there's me and I'm thinking they're not cool enough. So my mom is probably thinking, I don't care if I'm cool enough. I'm still your mom. You're going to do all this and so be it. As I got older, I realized that she had a lot on her plate and so did my dad. I mean, in their 30s to deal with all that. In in their 40s, I was a really dumbass. I wasn't very smart. But you
1: got top in your class most of the time.
0: But I'm talking about being ignorant about life. Having top results in schoolwork is no guide to whether you'll succeed in life. Getting great marks in school means just one thing, that you are able to get great marks in school. Doing well in maths doesn't mean that you'll be a great manager. So I'm always telling people, let's not overemphasize school results. It's no indicator of success. Anyway, in my 30s, i was pretty sure I wasn't able to have a family. I mean, have kids and all that and, and raise them as well as my mom. So as I got older, I began reevaluating my mom. I think we all do that in a way. We keep seeing our parents through different lenses in childhood, in adolescence, as a young adult. As we get older, and then now my mom's passed away, I think, that's another lens. How unfortunate that I didn't have this lens 40 years ago, 30 years ago. I could have said, mom, you did a great job. All I remember was complaining about how she raised me.
1: I suppose that's the reality that pretty much all of us are guilty of as well. We just don't have that perspective. Hopefully, Mm -hmm. it's not too late when we do have... I Mm -hmm. want to talk a bit about Commonwealth Clothes because it's such a fascinating world. The fact that you have no privacy whatsoever, your business is everyone's business. I imagine it wasn't just your floor, the whole block knew you were in ACS, and you're probably one of the only few ones there. Was there some well, kind of tension? N- no,
0: it wasn't a very competitive block for some reason. We were on the 11th floor, it's mostly Hainanese, and we kind of stuck together a lot. We'll argue among ourselves, but we'll still stick together. And we would know the business of each person whose family was doing well, who got a promotion, which couple was having marital strife, which child did well, which child did badly, who is sick, who is not sick. They would take care of each other. For example, someone needs to go somewhere, someone else would babysit. They would share food. When I say that, I realize how weird it sounds to me now, to the Singapore of 2022. But when I was growing up, people, would cook, and they would cook more than what their family would eat. And then they would take a dish down to so-and-so, the old lady, the washerwoman, and say, oh, you know, we cooked that extra dish. Oh, today is my kid's birthday, so we made a cake. And they would also gamble together. That was a a big thing. It's either tontine or something else called tzabziki, which is some probably very illegal thing. So the idea is that you would know every family from one end of the floor to another. There were good and bad things because everyone was the same dialect group. I didn't know a lot of Malays, Indians, and Asians uh, until I went to ACS, which is why it was so eye-opening. But I didn't know how to relate to them. And when you're young, Chinese people can be very racist. I don't know whether you realize this, but yeah, when yes. you're young...
1: You're very uh, racist and you don't accept that you're racist.
0: That's right. That's right. My neighbours would say, if you don't behave, the Bengali man will come and put you in a sack and take you away. is the sort of thing they tell little children. So of course, I had this paralysing fear of Indians until I went to ACS. And then I realised that, oh, these are all my friends. I don't understand why my neighbours have been telling me all this crap.
1: I imagine knowing how you grew up, you really understood what community meant. That was all you knew. When you went to Hua Chong, then you really felt that distance because I imagine you grew up thinking, I am Chinese, I'm Hainanese. And they go to watch and think, I'm not a real Chinese. It must have been um, jarring.
0: Well, yes, you're quite right. But what happened was that my first school eradicated a lot of Chineseness from me. My first school being ACS. My second school, Kua Chong, tried to put a lot of it back, but there wasn't enough time. It's hard to put Chineseness back into someone. So ACS is a place where we're known for many things, for example, swimming, sports, being good at business, chatting up females, but we're very bad in Chinese. It's legendary in my time how awful ACS Boy's Chinese was. It was also taught very badly at that time. There was a lot of memorization. Imagine the entire week you're speaking in English, you listen to English music, you watch English movies and TV shows, read English books. And then for just two hours that week, suddenly you have to speak Chinese and you have to be good at it. I couldn't make the switch. I think it's a terrible way to teach a language. I agree.
1: I went to the same school. I mean, the difference was that I was in a primary Chinese school for six years. So I had that grounding. But then when I went to a private school where English was spoken the whole time, unless (laughs) you spoke Chinese language, I could see the difference. You don't learn Mandarin that way for two hours a week. (laughs) Absolutely
0: right. There must be a better way to do this. I was totally uninterested. I didn't think there was any point in me learning Chinese. There was no utility and it's not fun. I associated it with pain and all kinds of horrible things. But then I had a scholarship to go to Huachong. Chong is diametrically opposed to ACS in terms of Chinese ness. At one end of the scale, you have ACS not just. English-speaking, but very westernized in their outlook, in the way they deal with people, in the way they talk to their teachers. It's all very casual, and there's a lot of humor and jokiness. And then you go to Chong, and it's on the other end of the scale. It's quite formal, it's less individualistic, it's more group-oriented, and it's very Chinese. I went there because the government said that they would pay me $2,000 a year if I switched. I studied in this program called the Humanities Program in Chong. That was a program which had teachers from England come to Singapore to teach economics, geography and literature and history to Singaporean students. This is an idea from Lee Kuan Yew. Lee Kuan Yew thought that foreign children needed to be taught English by native English speakers. And so he got the best teachers from England to come over And some genius in the Ministry of Education thought that the best place to put these very Westernized English teachers was in the most Chinese school in Singapore. So you go figure, the mystery of government, that's why it can't be in government. So I had to go and I had to spend my time inside this English capsule within Huachung, this little world where 22 of us students would listen and interact with these native English speakers. All the time, they teach us stuff about England. And then we step out of the classroom and we get provided with Chinese everything. So in Chong, school song is in Chinese. When you play sports, you cheer in Chinese. The biggest festival in Chong was the Mid-Autumn Festival or Mooncake Festival. I'm giving these examples to show how Chinese it was. they all very alien to me. If I could travel back in time, I'd definitely make better use of my two years in Chong. But at that time, it was too much for my tiny mind to cope with having to learn English stuff and then having a Chinese world out there. So I had to give one of them up. Now, when I go back to Chong reunions, I feel very embarrassed because I'm nowhere near the ideal Chong student, very far from it.
1: I can sense that feeling because one of the first things that you read on your LinkedIn profile is, speaks a form of chinese not recognized or understood in china so clearly you still feel that very very much i thought what was really interesting as well because you said you talked about going back in time i imagine another thing you would want to change is the way you conducted your scholarship because it was because of your good english that you didn't get a scholarship to do law what's the story behind that
0: it's so frustrating and mystifying The idea is that I had a small scholarship for the A-levels. That's 17 and 18 years old. And that was to pay for my pre-university education. But the big scholarship was for university. Once you get your A-level results, you go for an interview and they will decide whether or not they will send you to England to do your university degree. And who will interview you? Well, it's the government. In Singapore, everything's the government. So the government had this panel, this commission, and it was one of the most eye-opening interviews of my life. I remember going there and talking to the panel, and it went quite well for a while. Then the chap in the middle, who was the oldest and who had a bit of an attitude, if I can say that, he had a bit of an attitude, said, well, what do you want to study? I said, I want to study law. I really like law. I want to be a lawyer. He says, Oh, oh, no, no, you can't. We are going to send you to England to study English, to become an English teacher. And I said, but I don't want that. I want to study law. And he says, well, your English is too good for law. And I was, what? What are you saying? He said, well, Li Kuan Yew. And you know, whenever they start a sentence with Li Kuan Yu, you know, you can't rebut it. He said to me, Lee Kuan Yew, our prime minister, said that the standard of English among lawyers is very poor. Now, your English is good. Therefore, by sheer logic, you cannot be a lawyer. Obviously, I wasn't going to stand for that. I said, no, no, no. I could raise the standard of English among lawyers and so on and so on. But they were just not going to change their minds. So, in the end, they offered me a scholarship to study English in the UK and then become a teacher after that. I didn't want To go to England and have a chance to have a four years of all expenses paid, university education, and get a degree and come back and have a job. But it wasn't the job I wanted. It's the most awful decision of my life. But I think I'm quite sure I made the right decision because my life is a lot happier now as a lawyer. So I had to tell my dad that they're not giving me a scholarship to do law. They're giving me a scholarship to do English. And he got very upset because he's very anti-system. He's a rebel.
1: can see where it's coming from now. Oh,
0: dear. Oh, dear. But yeah, to him, this confirmed that the system was nuts. He said, well, all right, I'll pay for your university. By that time, my dad and mom had already divorced. So it was nice nice of my dad to say that. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll pay for your university in NUS, National University of Singapore. You can study law there. It's not really expensive to study university in Singapore. The fees are quite affordable. I think they're still affordable. So because of that, I ended up being a lawyer. But NUS law faculty is a whole different story.
1: Why law? Because you wrote about it before saying if you did law, there's also no guaranteed job as compared to doing English. Yeah. It was to you a mockingbird that inspiring that you really needed to be a lawyer?
0: I think in life, we all have an identity. And sometimes we can find it and sometimes we can't. And Lingya, you can call it your why. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? For me, it was easy to answer that question. I'm supposed to be here, talk, to speak up for other people as a lawyer or as something else. I'm supposed to be an advocate. I know this because I like doing it. Even when I was in school, I would always want to speak, I always want to speak to explain what was going on and to put across a point of view. So to me, being a lawyer was the ideal job. I had no idea what a lawyer really did. Who among us really know? It was that romantic idea of, yes, I'm going to fight for justice. I'm going to stand up for the weak. I'm going to be the voice of the oppressed. I will be a lawyer. Honestly, there was nothing else I could see myself doing. I thought I might be a writer as well, but it seemed too much to do four years of university to learn to be a writer. I thought that maybe I could do both in university, in the law faculty.
1: You did end up doing both, actually. Before that, during NS, you wrote for two magazines, like Men and Hot, and it was a yuppie talk. <laughs> you That's right. To different personality. And then That's you wrote right. a book. What's the story behind that? Yes, yes.
0: In Singapore, men have to do two years or two and a half years of national service in my time. Our allowance was something like $100 a month. It wasn't a lot. So it was common for us to try and earn extra money. One of the things that I tried was to be a tuition teacher, to teach English.
1: Clearly not for you.
0: (laughs) I I was really bad. I was the worst in Singapore. So I thought I'd try something else. I started writing and I met someone at a party who was in a magazine and I offered to write. He offered to pay me 15 cents a word, which is a lot of money.
1: Even today? Even today, is that right? (laughs) Yes.
0: So I write every month. I write these articles for him. And he published a lifestyle magazine. It was one of these very posh magazines about how you, you should holiday and what restaurants to go to. The reader would be some young executive, maybe some middle management person. Definitely not me. I would try to imagine what that life was like and then write about it. I read other magazines, American magazines, British magazines, Try and get a sense of, oh, the reader is somebody like this. Then I would translate that to Singapore and then produce this stuff every month. And every month I would be paid. Then I was asked to do an advice column for a women's magazine. The idea was that for most women's magazines, there are advice columns, but the person giving the advice is a woman. And she's usually talking about men problems with other women. So my angle was, well, if you have a problem with a man, then why don't you ask a man about it? I can tell you more about our problems and you can see for yourself how problematic we are. So I did that column for a while. Eventually, I met someone else at a party and he was a book publisher. He said, oh, I read your articles.
1: That's go Acting, right?
0: go at King. yes. Okay. go ek King is my publisher. He's also a lawyer. He's also from ACS. So it's kind of like a tiny little world that we live in. He said, "When should you write a novel? And I said, oh, oh, I've never tried that. Then I said, but maybe I'll write a science fiction novel, maybe rocket ships and whatnot. And he said, no, no, you should just write about something you know. What do you know? And that was great advice, write about something you know. I said, the only thing I know is I've just finished junior college, pre-university, that's the life that I can recall. And he said, okay, you just write about that. Then I said, but that's just about going to school and meeting girls and getting into trouble. He said, yeah, yeah, but you know that's all you know, right? So just write that. So I wrote that. That was called The Teenage Textbook. It came out in 1988 during my first year of university. And it immediately became a bestseller. I'm not sure why. So if you're in Singapore in 1988, the world was very... Non Singaporean, as far as books were concerned. If you went to a bookshop, you would see tons and tons of books from the West, very few Singaporean novels. You would probably just see five Singapore books, if anything. And so I had very little prospect of success. I thought, I'll write this and maybe three people will read it. I'll give one copy to my mum and that's that. But I think my publisher had something to do with it. He got me good reviews. He talked to a lot of people and he argued with a lot of bookshops, to be honest. Say, oh look, this is a new book. You must carry it and you must put it here. I'm going to come and check up on you. I want you to sell a lot of copies of this book. And so before long, the book became a bestseller. It became the biggest bestselling novel in Singapore. It was number one on the bestseller list for more than a year.
1: You were loaded.
0: Well, okay, let me explain the economics of it. For an author, each book gets you 10% of the cover price in those days. Different people have different deals. I'm sure J.K. Rowling has a much Much better better, deal. Yes, and she deserves it. But for me, it was 10%. So the book was $7.75. So every book that was sold, I got $0.75. The royalties from my first book and my second book put me through university and after that through Pupillage. So I always like to say that I went through university, either 15 cents a word at a time or 75 cents at a time, because every week I would check, how is my book selling? Will I get enough money to pay for this and pay for that?
1: Were there royalty Uh, checks coming a quarter of every year?
0: uh, Annually, but in the beginning, it was quarterly. They sold tens of thousands of copies. It was astonishing. The book became play, a movie, a TV series, comics, many other things,
1: and even amazing today, licensing deals.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I should have thought of that, but uh, oh, no,
1: I, you did. It's an IP lawyer.
0: <laughs> no, you're right. It's very embarrassing for me, but I gave away all for free.
1: So that's and, the thing, right? I mean, because I've also been offered a book deal, and the big question is always: when you write, is it normal for the publisher to? own your IP because that's the most important thing.
0: No, no, no. You should own the copyright as the author and you should license your copyright to your publisher to do a few things. First, to publish the books. Second, maybe to publish translations. Depends on you. And then you must have a clause that says if your book goes out of print but your publisher doesn't want to do reprints, then you have the right to do reprints.
1: Yeah, all the IP rights will be brought to you.
0: Yes, that's right. So you must always own the copyright as a writer.
1: Exactly. I wanted to say when I was posting on LinkedIn saying that I was interviewing you, I immediately got a lot of responses. And there were two people just to encourage you who immediately went. I remember him for Teenage Textbook and Teenage Workbook. Another person said, enjoyed the book so much as a teenager, even got copies for my teenage children many years later. So clearly it still strikes a chord even among Singaporeans now. What I thought was so fascinating about your novels is that it's a subversive book. It was basically showing students, if you follow textbook answers, things will always go wrong. It seems to fall in line the way that you write with what you have always been. Like you said, I always argue against people. I always speak up. Were you always contrarian? Were you always going against the rules? Is that just part of your nature?
0: Well, you're absolutely right, Lingya. It is a subversive book and it's subversive because I'm not really a subversive, or at least not on the surface. On the surface, I try and get along with people. But deep in my heart, I always go, "Hmm, this is wrong. Why is it like this? I don't have the personality or the inclination to be confrontational with people. So it all comes out in my books and in my writing. So, when people read what I write, they have a certain impression of me as being very outspoken and always always ready to point stuff out and having a strong opinion on stuff. But then, when they meet me, they are nonplussed, they feel, "Oh, this is not you at all In my book, I'm trying to capture that idea. The Teenage Textbook is a story about how young people meet and they they fall in love or they have relationships, but with the help of a textbook. And this is a very Singaporean concept. The concept is that in Singapore, you should be told and taught everything. That if you follow a manual for life, if you follow a textbook, you'll be able to succeed. Nothing will go wrong.
1: And if and Lee Kuan says, then there is definitely nothing wrong.
0: That's right. Exactly. And that may work for schoolwork, but it doesn't work for life. And so the teenage textbook is a textbook about life that the characters in the book use. And whenever they refer to it and follow its instructions, everything goes wrong. Eventually, they have to abandon using a textbook and they muddle along through life like the rest of us.
1: And that was the end of episode 101. The show notes and transcript can be found at so forward slash 101. Stick around for this Sunday though, because we'll be continuing Adrian's story, starting with why Adrian was ashamed by the success of his novels, even when those royalties did put him through university. He also talks about what it was like working with Lavinda Singh, known as one of the top litigators in Singapore, what it's like being the president of Singapore's Law Society, why he thinks lawyers should be a lot more active and prominent on social platforms like LinkedIn, how he's coping with his cancer diagnosis, and so much more. So do stick around, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already, and see you this Sunday.